When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Warhead candies and Nilla wafers. The FDA says the packaging practice is illegal for vaping fumes. The agency says children could mistakenly drink the liquids, which are intended for use in e-cigarettes and vaping devices. In children, exposure to nicotine can cause seizures, coma, and heart failure. I'm Julie Walker. France's president is now in Australia, and as AP's Charles de la Desma tells us, he's caused quite a stir with an offhand remark about Australian leader Malcolm Turnbull's wife. Was it a Freudian slip by Emmanuel Macron, a joke link to French gastronomy perhaps, or even a week after his visit to Washington, a parody of President Donald Trump's infamous comments about Macron's wife? Whatever the case, Macron raised eyebrows in Sydney when, wrapping up a joint news conference, he referred to the Turnbulls and their hospitality. I want to thank you and your delicious wife for your warm welcome, were his words. The comment quickly sparked some light-hearted reaction on social media in Australia and in the press amid lively conjecture about the French leader's intent. I'm Charles de Ledesma. Another emergency landing. I'm Ed Donahue with an AP News Minute. There were no reports of injuries when a Southwest Airlines plane was forced to land at Hopkins Airport in Cleveland. One of the windows cracked on the Chicago to Newark flight. The plane landed safely. There are reports of C-130 aircraft from the Air National Guard crashed near Savannah Hilton Head International Airport in Georgia. Mike Pompeo says now that he is Secretary of State, there will be changes. I want the State Department to get a swagger back. We, um... We need our men and women out at the front lines executing American diplomacy with great vigor and energy and to represent the finest nation in the history of civilization. We should be proud of that. President Trump was at the ceremonial swearing-in of Pompeo today. Police in California are searching for a paroled sex offender who led them on an hours-long chase in a motorhome with two young children inside. The three-year-old boy and 11-month-old girl were found safe after the RV stopped. The suspect was nowhere to be found. I'm Ed Donahue. North and South Korea have taken down dozens of huge loudspeakers they used to blare propaganda across their tense border. South Korean soldiers dissembled loudspeakers in several frontline areas before pulling them away from the border. North Korea had also taken down its propaganda loudspeakers earlier in the day. Both Koreas had turned off the propaganda broadcasts along the 155-mile-long border last week before the summit. Online anytime. WebmasterRadio.fm. We're everywhere. All rise. Welcome to the Cyber Law and Business Report. Get the top story on the hot button internet legal topics of the day. This is your home for the latest on internet law and policy. Hear the latest net trends impacting business and have your questions answered right here. This is the Cyber Law and Business Report. Now, please welcome your host, the founder of the Internet Law Center, Bennett Kelly. Good morning. This is Bennett Kelly broadcasting live from the Internet Law Center here in downtown Santa Monica. We have a great show for you today. Please be seated. And today is our 300th show, and that's a 
happy milestone to achieve, and I'd like to thank all those who helped us get there, um, our advertisers, our listeners, and our guests, and especially there were a number of guests who've been on as many as 17 times during the um, eight years we've been on. want to thank them all, and uh, we make a mention of them in our show notes, which are at cyberlawradio.wordpress.com. Check it out, And um, but thank you for joining us for this journey. And <laughs> sounds like we've doubled our listeners, but uh, <laughs> and um, so our show today is an important one. It is on the downside of the sharing or platform economy, and our guest is calling in from beautiful Vancouver, and uh, she's Professor Catherine Riley, who's uh, an associate professor in the School of Communications at Simon Fraser University in Vancouver. Uh, professor Riley, you're with us. Yes, thank you very much for having me, and congratulations on 300 episodes. Thank you very much. I'm glad to have you. And um, so tell us a little bit about yourself and about Simon Fraser. Um, well, I'm an associate professor in the School of Communication. The School of Communication at Simon Fraser takes a, a critical and sustained look at communications, uh, both in a cultural sense and in a business sense. We look at policy and business issues and cultural issues. And uh, my own work um, focuses on um, technologies, communications technologies, and their impact on social change and development processes. And most recently, I've turned my attention to the sharing economy and its implications for social change processes, particularly in developing countries. Um, and Simon Fraser, um, there are two main universities in Vancouver. There's the University of British Columbia and there's Simon Fraser. And I would say the big difference between them is that UBC is, is more oriented to um, theorizing society and SFU is about practical stuff. We want to get out in the community and understand things, but also um, try to create change in the community. So that would be the, the characteristic that would... Um, stand out about SFU. And for, you know, I guess, American listeners, what stands out, I guess, for SFU is they're the only non-American school that participates in the NCAA. Um, <laughs> that is true. Yeah, we're accredited in the U.S. system for that purpose. Mm-hmm. It's, this is interesting. Interesting bit of trivia. And your alumni include um, the former first lady and current first mom, Margaret Trudeau. That's uh, also true, yeah. So we've had visits from uh, Pr- Prime Minister Trudeau um, to SFU because of that. <laughs> very good. So uh, we're, we're talking about what is the uh, – there have been a lot of – you've seen what often called disruptions in technology. And one area that's definitely taking place in is what is called the sharing economy, where we have the likes of Uber, Lyft, Airbnb, Liquid Space, and others. And um, there's definitely some benefits brought about by these platforms, lower, lower costs, increased supply, um, job opportunities that maybe didn't exist for some people. But we're seeing increasingly a lot of stories about the downside of these platforms. And uh, uh, before we get into them, and I, I don't, I don't know if you have any opening thoughts about that. 
You know, whenever there's a big, we can compare this to the disruption that happened in the news industry. So I think that's something people are familiar with, that a lot of newspapers have had to close their doors or radically change the way they operate because of the internet. And so all sorts of online journalism, citizen journalism, spaces like Facebook, they came to challenge traditional journalism. And that's the sort of disruption, what I mean by disruption. Um, It's a new technology and a new set of business practices and social practices that go along with that technology that disrupt an established business model and the ways that people already know to make money or to produce a product. And so it causes people to rethink. And in this space, what we've seen happen is um, the, the introduction of new ways of intermediating goods and services. So what do I mean by that? Well, um, we have had established models to connect buyers to sellers in the marketplace for um, finding a taxi, like for ride hailing, uh, for renting a place to stay in another city, for um, acquiring goods that you need to, you know, maybe renting equipment to go skiing or or um, borrowing something like a piece of uh, gardening equipment, we had established models to do all of those things. And these new sharing economy um, applications have come along and they've disrupted those established models. And that's caused all sorts of ripples through the economy. Now, as you say, there's lots of benefits to these things. One of the major benefits that people point to is... um, Uh, there's lots of excess capacity in our economy. What do I mean by that? What I mean is that all of us have stuff in our houses or we have houses or we have cars that we're not really using or we're not using to their maximum potential. And so, you know, you have that set of skis that you bought and you've only used two times and they're just sitting there. Well, somebody else could be using those skis or you have a car that you only use to commute to and from work. The rest of the time it's sitting in a parking lot idle. And so that piece, that item, has all of this excess capacity that could be exploited. And that would reduce um, the amount of production. Like, we really are facing uh, ecological limits. And so if we could cut down on the number of cars on the road or in parking lots, if we could cut down on the amount of stuff we all own, that would really be great for the environment. And at the same time, um, as you pointed out, these new platforms are creating new jobs and new types of jobs and, and, and they're flexibilizing jobs in ways that some people like and, and benefit from. However, there are lots of downsides to these types of disruptions. And so as um, people have freed up rooms in their homes to rent on Airbnb, for example, um, this has caused a crisis in rental markets because um, it, you know you can make a lot more money renting your room or your apartment by the night than you can renting it by the month. And a lot of cities around the world are facing a crisis with um, uh, a rental market availability. Um, particularly, this has struck tourism areas. So I know in my corner of the planet, um, cities like Tofino, Whistler, the Sunshine Coast, which are um, tourism areas, people who go there to work for the summer or for the winter, um, depending on the season, they can't find somewhere to live. And so this means that the resorts can't get workers 
because there's nowhere for the workers to live. So the resorts are having to provide housing. So these kinds of um, issues are a huge problem. They're a huge headache for the established business community. Um, They're a headache for workers. They're a headache for municipalities who are scrambling to figure out how to address this issue. Similarly, in the ride-sharing space, there are a lot of labor concerns. Um, So this really depends on the... It's very specific to each jurisdiction. Um, But when we look at taxis... Now, I just came back from South America, so I'm going to share some examples from South America. If you look at the city of Lima in Peru, not such an issue. Taxis have always been deregulated in Lima. Uh, so pretty much anyone could, you know, join a taxi company and, and put a car on the road and there wasn't a lot of, there weren't a lot of requirements for oversight. And so the introduction of Uber, if anything, people liked it because it meant that the service was improved and the quality of the rides was improved. And so it was quite, people were quite happy with it. But if you look at certain jurisdictions in Mexico, like Cancun, um, in Cancun, taxi drivers are heavily regulated and they have to buy a license. The license is very expensive and it takes about 15 years to pay it off. They also have to buy a car. So that car and that license together basically become the retirement policy and the social safety net for that taxi driver. So they, you know, take out a loan for however much money to buy this up front and then they spend the next 15 years earning an income but paying off this loan and then when they're ready to retire they sell the license and they take that money and they use it to fund their retirement. Now Uber comes along in that situation and suddenly the value of your retirement savings plan goes to zero and people are furious understandably right. So they were providing a good service it was regulated by the state, and then these illegal Uber drivers come along and completely undermine an established system. And it's threatening people's, you know, security and their, their job security and also their long-term prosperity. So these disruptions can have massive downsides that are really affecting communities. Not always, not in every jurisdiction, and it depends on the case. Um, but yeah, they can really have massive impacts. Now, one thing that struck me about some of the, some of the platforms, particularly the, the the ride sharing and the um, the home home short term home rental or room rental, is that in each case it, it basically had an emerging biz- business model that technically was illegal. Um, you know, offering taxi services a highly regulated thing in most cities in North America and they just jumped in uh, without regard for whether or not it was legal or not and the same with uh, you know some of the home rentals um, you know tourist cities like New York and LA and other places have rule laws that regulate you know um, long-term and short-term rentals and um Basically, they just jumped in, got market share, and then said to the regulators, you, you have to deal with us. Um, this has been, regulators are really frustrated about this. Um, we're starting to now see regulators put their foot down with this um, business strategy. It's really a business strategy of um, 
you know, act now, ask for forgiveness later. And I'm not even, right. not even asking for forgiveness, right? Uh, and so they just bulldoze through. They act so fast. They, they, they bring their lawyers um, and they, they argue their case based on legal loopholes. And then they wait because they know that um, if they get the consumers on site, that the regulators will have to work with them. So in many jurisdictions, Uber is famous for this. They have a kind of um, advocacy team or a lobby team that goes in and works over the community and gets the community on site. We don't have Uber in Vancouver. I have used Uber when I've been traveling in other places. And because of that, Uber has my email address. And they know that I live in Vancouver because they have my credit card information. So they send me... Uh, emails that tell me, hey, don't you want to have Uber in Vancouver? You should uh, sign our petition or you should um, come out to our events. So they're really preparing the community to be their advocates, uh, to put pressure on politicians to support their um, expansion into this city. So they are really organized. But initially, yes, you're right, they would push into a community and then ask, you know, ask for forgiveness later. We had a case in Vancouver of an Uber Lite app that was in um, Mandarin, and it was serving the um, Mandarin-speaking community in Vancouver, and it basically went under the radar for a good period of time until somebody because it's a Mandarin, and yeah, hey. yeah, said, "Hey, this isn't legal," and so they got shut down because in this jurisdiction it's not allowed. But yeah, there's a lot of that sort of attitude. And it comes from an interesting place, which is um, a a real startup culture and innovation culture that is really important in the world right now. This kind of maker lab space, hacker space, where people are being really innovative and trying to create solutions to problems that exist in the urban space. Uh, so I think we have to celebrate where it's coming from, but then question the tactics a little bit and of course, maybe yes. slow down a little bit. Yeah. I, here in L.A., actually, I, I'm in a, a strange situation. They recently allowed uh, Uber and other you know, ride-sharing cars to come to the airport. And I knew someone on the airport commission, uh, a friend who was you know, very pro getting uber in and i also have a friend at a city council whose dad was a taxi driver and he he was on the opposite side and you know that kind of in a nutshell just so you can see what the one one guy sees the benefits of it the other guy sees the costs of it but from the cost side the one thing that you don't get communicated is Taxi drivers do have background checks. You know, there's certain regulations in place, and certain things to more or less ensure consumer safety. And those things are in place. For example, um, in both the housing and the the car, um, you know, the rideshare situation, um, we also have issues we're seeing of discrimination. In housing and ride sharing, that you know, if you have an African American name, um, your sounding name, you're less likely to get either an Uber or an Airbnb. And um, there's questions about accessibility and, and just a reduction of supply. Um, you know, you were talking about how the problems you're having in Whistler, in uh, Iceland, which is really going through a, a tourism boom. Um, 10% of their housing 
uh, stock is is devoted to uh, is online at uh, Airbnb, and so it's become very expensive and hard to find housing in whatever place you wouldn't expect that that would be the case. Yeah. So in Vancouver, in in with regards to the supply issue. Mm, BC, we have a double whammy. So we had the Uber situation at the same, or sorry, the Airbnb situation and the, you know, the short-term housing uh, rental situation happen at the same time as we became a, a destination for um, investment in housing um, by foreign capital. So uh, not only have prices gone up enormously in our market for housing, but also the amount of housing available has gone down because of short-term housing rentals. So really the market became extremely tight and it's a crisis for people. You get stories all the time of, you know, a family with four children living in a two-bedroom condo or, you know, renting a two-bedroom condo because that is literally all they can afford. It's it's um, really a problem. The province of Vancouver, of British Columbia and the city of Vancouver have been working on this issue. And so they have started to um, require that all um, rental housing, short-term rental housing be registered with the city and you have to pay additional taxes and and these sorts of things. And we're starting to see kind of um, housing rental vigilantes spring up who do advocacy work. They go around and they identify laneway houses that are likely to be on Airbnb and then they check you know, are they on Airbnb? Yes, they are. Okay, are they registered with the city? Let's check, right? And so they do this kind of work. So I think communities are beginning to um, find their way towards um, solutions. And unfortunately, in these, this 10-year period of disruption, it's going to hurt some people really badly. Um, but I think that that kind of regulation will start to happen. The thing I would like to talk about, um, which I think is really interesting, is the problem of, of how you go about regulating these spaces. So there are some traditional tools, like I say, like introducing taxation. And Airbnb has worked with um, authorities in this jurisdiction to, to um, you know, help authorities implement these taxa- taxation policies, right? Um, it, you can use those types of traditional level, levers, but what we're seeing arise, which is really important, is the use of digital means to implement these regulations. So we know that these platforms work on the basis of data. So the reason that um, they can intermediate between a buyer and a seller or between a renter and a, a rentee is because of the data that they hold about the stock of stuff out there and about the users. And so they can pair people together who are um, who are have something to share with each other. So as intermediaries, they hold this data. They can record data about the transactions that happen so they can begin to predict patterns. They can set algorithms that will shape the way that um, people interact with each other in these spaces. And also, um, if the network is big enough, they can begin to play on network effects within these spaces. And so they can, they get millions and millions of transactions, and they can use the power of that those large numbers to, um, you know, create patterns of of interaction in these spaces. So that's a preoccupation on one side. It gives, makes these platforms extremely powerful in their ability to control 
um, movement of goods and services in a community, but it also makes them really good at being able to, um, I don't know, maximize availability of these goods in the community or make the movement of these goods really efficient. So this is the double-edged sword. Now, for regulators, how do they regulate these spaces? One of the things regulators are starting to look at is, well, can we use the same tools? How could we use the same tools to regulate them? In other words, could we set rules about the types of algorithms that they can use or how they can apply algorithms within their spaces? And would that in some way allow us to control the movement of goods and services in the community? So let me give you an example. Um, this is one of my favorite examples. This comes from Sao Paulo, Brazil, and it's from the taxi industry. So you have, you know, Uber and you have Lyft and Cabify and all these different operators. You also have the possible future of um, driverless cars, right, that could operate exactly, yeah. on public roads. And you also have traditional taxi drivers who are still operating and will still continue to operate for a very long time. Um, and they said, okay, we want to regulate these guys. How are we going to do it? And they decided, look, we need to control the data flow. That's what we need to control in order to regulate the space because it's all based on data. And so they said, we're going to put a sensor in every automobile that tracks with GPS the movement of this automobile. And then we are going to have data about where every car in the city is, every ride-hailing car in the city is. Uh, and we'll be able to use our understanding where they are and how they move to incentivize their movement through the city. And so they said, the second piece of this is, these cars are all using public infrastructure. They're driving on public roads. And so we're going to charge them a fee to move over public infrastructure. And we're going to sell these credits in auctions. And the drivers have to buy credits in order to be able to move to the city. And that allows them to incentivize drivers so they can charge less to drive on uh, roads that are in neighborhoods that are underserved. And they can charge more to drive in a downtown core during peak hours, for example. Um, they can also use this incentive system to um, pursue social ends. So, for example, they can incentivize drivers to pick up disabled people by charging less for, that, for the use of the road infrastructure for that ride. Uh, similarly, they can pursue equity programs. So if they want to encourage employment among certain communities of people, say women, they can charge that community of people less to use the public infrastructure than they charge another community. So it becomes a powerful tool to um, regulate this space, but they're using the same tools. They're taking control of the platform tools to regulate the space. And I think that's really fascinating, and it's where the future of regulation in this space is going to go. Another uh, thing that people are talking about is, well, if you set goals, if you as a municipality or a province or a federal government set, set rules for these operators, which is happening, how do you, how do you know? if they're following the rules. And the way to do that is to audit their application of algorithms. It's to audit their data. But we don't have tools for doing that. We don't know how to do that yet. So people are starting to talk about data audits and algorithm audits and setting up third-party um, professionals 
who would have the task of auditing the activities of these operators. So I think that's very fascinating. So we're in really diapers when it comes to figuring out how to regulate these spaces, but there's really interesting, uh, a really interesting road ahead of us in terms of how to um, imagine the relationship between these businesses and the state and the community. One road ahead of us is we have to take a break for our sponsors, but we'll be back after these messages. You're listening to Cybalon Business Report, only on webmasterradio.fm. Stay tuned for more of the Cyber Law and Business Report after this brief recess for our sponsors. Are you looking for the best in WordPress speed, security, and scalability? WP Engine is a digital experience platform for WordPress, powering digital experiences for large brands around the world. With easy-to-use site management tools and powerful do-it-your-way development features, WP Engine gives you the flexibility to build it your way. Improve your SEO and conversion rates with a faster site on WP Engine. Learn more on WPEngine.com. Looking for a better way to get more traffic and interaction to your Facebook page? Imagine Facebook interactivity on your page like you've never seen. Introducing your new Facebook marketing fix, so social the new and revolutionary way to easily manage and automate your Facebook contest and sweepstakes. Create a fun, easy-to-win contest by writing a simple Facebook post. Watch your post go more viral and generate loads of interaction. Track your traffic and generate email lists with ease. So social is mobile-friendly and complies with Facebook terms of service. Let So Social give your Facebook page some flash today. Zoom over to zosocial.com. The Web Marketing Association is now accepting entries for the 2018 International Web Award Competition. Web Marketing Award winners receive an image plaque, certificate of achievement, higher visibility for your company, valuable feedback from our expert judges, and links to your site from the highly ranked Web Award site. Visit www.webaward.org to nominate your company, site, or organization. Deadline for entries is May 31st, 2018. Go to www.webaward.org and sign up today. Warning. Listening to webmasterradio.fm daily may cause webmaster insomnia and an increase in your company's profits. Webmasterradio.fm. Stay up with us all night long. Webmasterradio.fm. We're everywhere. The best gavel-to-gavel legal news and information on the net is right here. This is the Cyber Law and Business Report, only on webmasterradio.fm. And we're back and we're talking about the disruption economy with Catherine Riley, and uh, she's an associate professor at Simon Fraser University, SFU. And um, we were talking, I have to be careful how you say that, I guess. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Yes. We're. We're, we're, don't say it too slow, but we're, um, we were talking about some of the problems and the disruption caused. And one of the issues that come up that you mentioned is, you know, the disruption on the revenue side and just kind of a side note from a, you know, a political perspective, um, in tourist communities, um, hotel and tourist type taxes, are very valuable. They bring in a lot of revenue, but the, the value to is that 
Um, there's an old saying by a Louisiana Senator Russell Long, who used to control the tax committee and on Capitol Hill for many years. And he used to say that lobbyists always said, don't tax, don't tax you, don't tax me, tax the guy behind the tree. And um, that's what tourist taxes are. They're taxing non-citizens. And so they have particular value to these communities because they're able to increase taxes without having any uh, repercussions at the ballot box. And so by affecting that revenue, um, you're you're basically threatening the um, local communities kind of insulation of to an extent of their uh, share of the revenue. Um, So just an observation. Now, you talked about the importance of data in, in these type of systems. And, in, in fact, we were talking earlier about the, the um, sharing economy. And, and I think you correctly stated that this is really – it's a platform economy. And the, key, mm-hmm. and the key driver of that platform is the data, as you were suggesting. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so there's a um, – you know, the, the idea of the sharing economy – uh, has become a, a discourse that is interpreted by the particular group um, that happens to be using the term at the time. Originally, the idea was that that uh, digital systems could be used to facilitate the sharing among neighbors of of their excess stuff, right? Like I have a lawnmower and you don't need to buy one. We can all share the lawnmower as a community, right? And we can coordinate that sharing through some sort of a digital platform. But quickly this has become not so much about sharing, but about renting, right? So we're renting room in somebody's car. We're renting room in somebody's house. We're renting their skis for a weekend, whatever. So that's not really um, about sharing. But what is common to all of these platforms, whether they are about sharing or renting or something similar, is that there's an intermediation of goods and services. And so this guy, Nick Srenasek, uh, who's a, an academic in the UK, wrote a book that was published last year called Platform Capitalism. And he really puts his his finger on it and, and says, this is about intermedi- intermediation of, of goods and services. And um, this is what sets this apart is it's a new model of intermediation. And he points out that um, that intermediation can happen thanks to the intensive use of data. Um, so, you know, they, the platform can know who we are because they have data about us and we put in data about what we have to share, but also where we're located and how far we're willing to travel and all of these sorts of things. Similarly, um, the platform uses algorithms to um, control the governance of that space. So who meets with whom in the space. And then finally, there's network effects. You have to have a certain critical mass of people and critical mass of data to make this all work. If you only have two people's information and I have skis and you need an accordion, that's not going to work, right? So we have to have a certain critical mass of people in the site. And um, so once you start to think about it as intermediation of goods, it becomes really, it's really helpful because you begin to understand that, um, you know, this is first of all about a relationship between a buyer and a seller. And we do regulate that all the time. You know, as you pointed out earlier, we have regulations to ensure 
say, sanitation when you go into a restaurant or safety when you get into a cab. And uh, there have to be there has to be a certain level of insurance for a cab driver. There has to be a certain level of training for a cab driver, right? Like we have that type of regulation and, and it's widely accepted. And so once you start to understand that these platforms are intermediaries of transactions, it becomes easier to imagine regulating those transactions uh, as something that would be desirable. Um, secondly, I think um, once we understand them as uh, data-intensive spaces, we begin to understand that they have a different type of power than non-data-intensive spaces. So, you know, the Yellow Pages is an intermediary. It intermediates a relationship between a buyer and a seller. It's analog. It's old school. Well, it's not analog anymore, but I'm imagining the old book, right? Right. So, uh, Yellow Pages book is an analog listing that intermediates relationships between buyers and sellers and facilitates that relationship. The difference between something like Uber or Airbnb is the control they have over the transaction. They have data about the transaction itself. And that means that they, in theory, so I'm not saying this necessarily happens in practice, but in theory, they have control over price setting, for example, in their spaces. And this means that competition law is con- the competition lawyers are concerned about these spaces, at least in Canada. We know this. Um, the competition uh, offices of the federal government in Canada are studying this space actively because they're worried about the type of control that these actors would have over transactions. And as you pointed out earlier, there are also concerns about um, racism within these spaces or the potential that pricing might be different for different groups, that it might be unfair. And if, you know, algorithms are used to establish prices, um, they might uh, reinforce particular biases within communities. They might charge, like you can imagine just a very innocuous case, people who are poor tend to live further away from city centers. And as a result, they might end up paying higher rates for taxis than people who live in the downtown core. And this reinforces inequality in a community because the people who can afford to live downtown are paying cheaper rates because there are more taxis and that drives down the price, et cetera. But there are also studies showing that people who have certain ethnic names have a harder time getting, uh, you know, ride share or had to have difficulty on Airbnb. So yeah, it's not, it's not just because of their location. It's actually, you know, because someone making a judgment uh, about their or, you know, it's harder to control though, because it's the taxi driver or the Airbnb host themselves who's saying, no, I don't think so. Uh, Uber has gotten, or sorry, Airbnb has gotten into trouble over that, and they've pledged to um, adjust their systems to try and deal with this. Um, And that's both hard systems and soft systems, right? That's both looking at your algorithms and your data systems, but it's also looking at training and vetting of hosts and, and this sort of thing, which I think is a more challenging thing to address. And so you get, you know, you get regulation coming from municipalities and things. You also get regulation that happens from users, right? Where users stick up their hand and say, we don't like this. And they make a fuss in the media. And um, 
these corporate actors have to respond. You know, like it hurts their reputation and it hurts their bottom line. And so they uh, also get regulated by their users, I would say. Well, just like Starbucks had the impact here when um, the two African-Americans were, were asked to leave a store in Philadelphia and it caused a national backlash. Um, but that only happens if you're a large outfit. And uh, so the question is, is you know, if you're a smaller outfit, are, are you insulated from those type of things? Hmm. I am not sure how to answer your question. I think... Um, eh, you know, it would be harder to call Urban Share to account in Vancouver if there were an issue like that because no right. one really. Or the according to the talking about earlier, um, the uh, but one issue that uh, one issue that comes up is, I think consumer and I was watching a news report about instances of rape on uh, in Uber and Lyft. And the the one of the victims, she said, you know, I, it's just unfair. You know, they, I just thought that the they advertised that, that they're safe and you know you you can use them, and uh, and you know, I was shocked that this happened. And, and the thing is, is they don't necessarily advertise that they're safe. You know, they advertise we're this alternative platform, we're cheaper. In fact, Uber says we're not a transportation company, we're a platform. And so I think consumers somehow figure, well, these are allowed on our roads. They must be just as safe as a taxi when it's unclear what protections they have, for example, in the event of an accident. Um, they don't may, in some cities, they, they may or may not have um, background checks on these people. And, and the same with the housing issue and Airbnb, you know, they've had rape issues. They've had criminals who have been renting. And in fact, some of the people have been using Airbnb as a way to do, uh, you know, kind of um, small brothels, um, and so there's there's kind of this public perception that since it's allowed, it must be safe. Well, I, I certainly don't know that that's the case. Just because it's allowed, it's safe. I think uh, where it hit home for me was a trip to Mexico City this past fall. Um, we booked this trip, um, and then the earthquake happened. And a number of buildings in some of the most touristy areas of Mexico City were really damaged. And I said to my husband, gee, you know, we really need to rethink this Airbnb thing because there is not going to be any guarantee that the building that we book an Airbnb in is going to be safe. They simply won't have had the time to do all the engineering checks if they even happen. And there's no way of knowing, right? Whereas if you stay in a major hotel chain, you feel more, um, you know, I guess it's that the, their reputation causes them to ensure that that kind of safety check is done. And so you feel more confident that you're going to be taken care of. So, yeah, you know, when you're talking about that sort of distributed um, network of, of rooms, uh, it, it's really difficult to ensure safety at that level. Um, I think uh, I think that that is truly a concern. My experience overall has been positive, but that doesn't mean that we shouldn't pay attention to the cases where um, there are negative experiences. Uh, it's it's um, I think beholden to jurisdictions to do more. 
Um, in the case of Vancouver or in the province of British Columbia, what I can tell you is that, again, we don't have Uber yet. Uber's not. We just recently got Uber Eats, um, but we don't have Uber yet. And my interpretation of what is going on is that the province and the municipalities are taking their time to allow the existing taxi industry to um, modernize so that everyone can compete on equal footing. And part of that process of modernization has been updating um, regulations for insurance, updating um, the actual jurisdictions where taxis can move, because, you know, Uber can move anywhere, but taxis in the existing system were limited to their particular turf. So they had to loosen those turf boundaries, but they had to change the way they understood insurance of these cabs. Um, so because um, it used to be that the cab itself was insured, but if I'm using my personal family vehicle four hours a week to operate an Uber, then I need it actually to be a special insurance by the hour. Right. Right. Or a flexible. So they've had to update all of this legislation and it's taken a lot of time and a lot of thought to figure out, okay, what would be appropriate here? The training and certification issue is really tough. We're really, these platforms rely on a fantasy of communitarianism. Um, <laughs> you know, the idea that you can stay at your neighbor's house, right? Right. And uh, it, it just isn't that way. Right. Like, I think um, that fantasy is is the tough one that we have to confront, that there need to be uh, some training systems and some certification systems to check out that people really are in a position to rent a room in this building, that this building is not going to fall down. Right. Um, and that, uh, that it is safety. Like, well, in the case of Mexico, we were like, huh, this could really happen. right? We could rent an Airbnb that would literally fall down. We just don't know. Um, yes. That's tougher. That's a lot tougher to regulate. I would say. Now you, you focus a lot on the, in, both, you know, North American markets, but you also focus on Latin American and other world markets. And is the sharing economy is the the, the balance of the equation, whereas here we're weighing the downsides, but, um, you know, we're not sure how this is adding up just yet. Is the balance of the equation um, any different in developing economies? Um. I'm not sh well it has been dealt with differently in different jurisdictions I would say that's for sure um, I can look at a city like Seoul Korea is really interesting where the municipality of Seoul opened up these competitions for the development of new apps and, and new services that would try to make life better and so they kind of had a public private partnership working with tech development firms and other initiatives and said, so we're going to support you to develop these new apps. And they had this blossoming of, of apps for things like um, finding a parking spot. So, you know, very big city, very busy city, hard to find parking spots. And now you can kind of book them in advance through an app, which means you're circling less and you're idling less and you're polluting less and you're less frustrated and you get where you want to go faster. Exactly, yeah. You know, so we see these kinds of um, moments or the example that I, I said earlier about the regulation of, of um, hired 
cars in Sao Paulo. I think that's really innovative and, and exciting. Um, we have also seen lots of examples that are troubling. And so, you know, the, the of the few spaces where people have some job security, say in the taxi industry, discovering now that um, they're, they're, they're secure um, retirement or their social safety net is being undermined by the introduction of Uber. That's a real problem in places where there are very few opportunities for secure jobs. Um, we've also seen um, in many cases, you know, you you have to have goods with excess capacity to, to be able to participate in this space. That's the bottom line. Like, if you want to be a player in the platform space, you have to have a room to rent or you have to have a car to share, right? Mm-hmm. And in many parts of the developing world, that is simply not the case. The two billion of the world's people do not have any resources on which to base their participation in this space. And so to think that the platform economy is going to solve the poverty issues of those people it would be a stretch. Um, what we have seen happen in cities like Cape Town and, and elsewhere is that you get middle-class people who buy an extra car and set it up as a business, and they hire a person to drive that car for them. So it means that the driver is actually getting even less than what, say, Uber or Lyft or right. Cabify or whomever would have been allocating to them, and somebody else is taking a cut. And so it does create a job. It's not as good a job as it could be. Um, I think we should also talk in terms of developing countries about um, the whole gig economy and so uh, online um, segmentation of labor, so where you pick up little jobs that you can do online. And in that case, um, certain countries have have begun to try to train gig economy labor forces. So the government of Pakistan, for example, mounted an official policy of educating workers for the gig economy. And they're basically um, saying that uh, this is a way of providing jobs, but they are providing a particular type of job to people through the global gig economy. So there's a lot to chew on there. And whether that's going to be overall positive or overall negative, uh, I think will depend on certain jurisdictions, but there's a lot of concern. There's a lot of concern about whether such flexibilized labor is um, what we should be aiming for, labor without benefits or without a social security system attached to it. I think there's a lot of concern. And I've I've actually used some of those services. I use a a transcription service that you through a, a platform, and the, the woman who transcribed these uh, you know these tapes for me um, was based in Kenya, and but, but highly regarded. You know, she was like the most sought after. But one thing that's sought after right now is a word from our sponsors. We'll be right back with mm-hmm. more on this topic. You're listening to the Cyber Law and Business Report only at Webmaster Radio FM. Stay tuned for more of the Cyber Law and Business Report after this brief recess for our sponsors. 
AM Days 2018 comes to Las Vegas, May 16th and 17th. Register now at amdays.com. Make the most of your performance marketing with help from some of the most iconic brands, including Microsoft, Capital One, Uber, Backcountry, and many more. AM Days 2018 brings together a powerhouse of industry leaders and dealmakers to network and share insights on the latest practices and cutting-edge updates in performance marketing and more. Make plans to be in Las Vegas for our landmark 10th event. AM Days 2018, Las Vegas, May all of your favorite webmasterradio.fm programs on air and on demand 24-7. Find our shows on iHeartRadio, iTunes, Stitcher, and anywhere you download your podcasts. Add some podcasts to your playlist as part of a better profit margin. More refreshing talk radio on air and on demand 24-7. Only on webmasterradio.fm. We're everywhere. We're everywhere. More refreshing talk radio on air and on demand 24-7. WebmasterRadio.fm. We're everywhere. The best gavel-to-gavel legal news and information on the net is right here. This is the Cyber Law and Business Report, only on WebmasterRadio.fm. And we're back. This is Ben and Kelly. We're talking with Catherine Riley at SFU in vancouver and uh if you haven't been to vancouver it's a beautiful city uh, a quick announcement um tomorrow i will be presenting a webinar on basics of cyber law for secure the village which is a, a cybersecurity organization run by stan stall who's been on this show about eight times you may recall him so check that out there's information on that in our show notes we're fortunately running out of time there's so many issues i wanted to go over with you Catherine, particularly the, the privacy issues and the control of the data but we only have about two minutes left so if, we have some information on you uh, in our show notes but if people want to learn more about this uh, what how should they contact you or how where should they go they can reach me. Um, I have a Medium uh, blog at uh, KMA Riley, and Riley is R-E-I-L-L-Y. I also have a Twitter feed at KMA Riley, and uh, they can reach me through my website at the School of Communication. Just search for Catherine Riley SFU, and you'll find me. Um, and I'm, I'm really happy to uh, hear from people if they want to chat about these issues further. And we, we've included a link to one of her Medium posts, um, Data, the Sharing Car Economy, and Canadian Federal Regulation. Um, so definitely check that out. And you're going to be speaking at RightsCon in Toronto, right? Yeah, so RightsCon is a, a big uh, conference of um, rights, and particularly digital rights activists and thinkers and commentators. It's happening in Toronto in a couple of weeks. And so I will be there. And if people are listening to this and they're there, I hope you'll search me out. Be nice we to have, chat with you. And we have a link to that in the show notes as well. I, I Originally, I was confused. Um, there is a, a conference in the U.S. called RightCon, which is kind of like the, oh. the right wing. <laughs> it's like a, you know, for right wing political activists. And oddly enough, I was invited uh, one year to present there, even though I'm obviously on the opposite side. And so I'm like, why is they having RightCon in Canada? <laughs> so um, any event, yeah, your your program sounds much more fun than the one I went to. But thank you very much again. And um, uh, it's been an interesting topic. We're running out of time. So um, everyone, check out um, Catherine's blog and... Thank you for joining us for show number 300. We'll be back on another week with more of Cyber Law and Business Report. Happy Rhode Island Independence Day, everyone. May 4th. 
and uh, happy Cinco de Mayo. This is Bennett Kelly. We'll see you next week. The opinions expressed on this program are those of the guests and hosts and do not necessarily reflect those of WebmasterRadio.fm's management or sponsors. Any rebroadcast or redistribution without authorized consent of WebmasterRadio.fm is prohibited. Hello, I'm Hector Elizondo, and I want to talk to you about getting older. My body hurts, my joints ache, and sometimes I forget. I forget that doing all your own scenes for a movie isn't always the best decision, especially when you're galloping high speed on a horse named Archibello. So yes, my body hurts, but it's not because of my age. It's because I'm living my life. Don't let life pass you by. Take care of your brain health. It may just help you stay on top of your game. Learn more at brainhealth.gov. Want a hot pod? Load it with webmasterradio.fm and play with us. Save big this summer with great deals. All in the Kroger app. Get red, green, or black juicy seedless grapes for $1.88 per pound with your card and a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free delicious 12 packs of Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.